When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Springsteen fans, and welcome back to Springsteen Time 70, the quintessential Springsteen superfan podcast counting down Springsteen's 70 greatest songs of all time leading up to his 70th birthday. This is the final episode. Uh, I can't believe that we're already here. Today we're counting down songs number 10 all the way to number one, numero uno, the best Bruce Springsteen song ever. And today we're joined via Skype by Brian Hyatt, a guy who I've talked about pretty much every episode because he wrote this awesome new Bruce Springsteen book called The Stories Behind the Songs. Brian, hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, so just for people who don't know, Brian is a uh, senior writer at Rolling Stone magazine. He's interviewed everyone from Rush and Pete Townsend to uh, Taylor Swift, a million others. Uh, He's uh, the host of the Rolling Stone Music Now podcast. And uh, like I said, he wrote this great book, which tells the stories of every Springsteen song in existence. Uh, Brian has interviewed Springsteen himself a bunch of times. So, Brian, before we kick it off with song number 10, I'd love to hear a little bit from you about the book uh, and why you wanted to basically write the most exhaustive Bruce Springsteen song manual ever created. Well, you know, honestly, a publisher, a British publisher, reached out to me, asked if I would be interested, and uh, although I didn't really have time to do it, I was like, okay, well, I will do a better job on this, or at least try to do a better job on this than most people that would reach out to, I'll take this really seriously. And I, I sort of couldn't stand someone else doing it. So <laughs> that's why I took it. That's why I, I took it on, even though I did, I, you know, pretty tough with the day job uh, and it had to be done very quickly, quicker than I would have preferred. So, um, it's, you know, that's pretty much the origin story. Right. And, uh, and how many, how many times have you interviewed Bruce over the years? It looks like you've talked to him. I believe, at least a I believe it's times. Uh, five times. Yeah. Wow. Cool. And he, he's always been, he's always been good to you. He's always been a nice dude. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, it's it's he he takes interviews very very seriously as mm-hmm. you know as he takes most things. Right. <laughs> um, so so it's not you know I, I think the last time when I talked with him, which was the only one that was a cover story, so I had a little bit more time. That was probably the most relaxed we were, and there was some laughter, and uh, you know, right. and, and uh, you know, it was um, a little bit more of a, a, a personal interaction but uh, he in general he you know he takes it very very seriously he's aware he's not just talking to you he's talking kind of for posterity so you know it's it's uh you, you got to bring your a-game yeah yeah definitely i can't even imagine um okay well brian let's let's uh do what we do best on this podcast and start breaking down uh some of the best songs so we're gonna start with number 10 and as we always do i'm gonna play the clip before i i uh 
name the song, get let you all uh, sweat it out for a second. And so the number 10 is uh, my little tease is, I think it's maybe uh, the Professor Roy Bitten's uh, best piano melody that he, he's, ever, he's ever come up with. So this is number 10. So that was uh, Backstreets, of course, at uh, number 10. Uh, that's off of Born to Run, 1975, and kicking off our list today. And uh, so I, under- I understand a few things in this world. One of the things I think I sort of understand is piano. I play piano. And uh, mm. so I've always been uh, a huge fan of, of Dave, Dave Sanchez's early stuff and then Roy Bitten, of course. And for me, that this is the Roy Bitten piano, piano melody, uh, the it starts the whole piano intro is sort of a song in it, in itself, and I th- this is what the one thing that if I could actually figure out how to actually play this entire intro, I would probably die happy. So, uh, <laughs> Brian, what what do you think about Backstreets and its uh, and how it fits on uh, Born to Run? It has a certain unique power to it that I think probably stands alone, even in the whole Springsteen catalog. It's just this. Epic is a very overused word. It's funny because it's it's set up like he's going to tell you a story about the battle to save the world or something, and it's just about you know hanging out on the beach, <laughs> right, and getting, getting wasted <laughs> was, in the heat, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah if you, but if you listen to the intro, it sounds like you know life, all life and death are at stake. You know, it's a, there's something very uh, very portentous about that sure. intro. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, my sense is that Bruce, for the most part, wrote the the main sort of piano melodies for most of those songs, including mm-hmm. that one. And, and what he would do is, you know, and you can kind of hear how in the documentaries and sometimes on stage, you can hear how he plays it simply, you know? Right. And then what happens is uh, Roy would take what Bruce played in his most elementary fashion and expand upon it, you know, and make it into this, this bigger thing. And I think that's very much what happened here. And but it's it is it is interesting to realize you know like just how much uh, Bruce wrote on the piano and and, and you're right playing you know I've been playing a, I, I play guitar mostly but I'm playing a little piano and I I've essentially started to realize and this is after I wrote the book but I mean you know what the reason I think that Bruce was writing on piano mm-hmm. is in part was because in his mind he wanted to hear both the chord progression and a m- sort of melody on top of that at right. once. And I mean, you know, basically, you know, an instrumental melody often. And on the guitar, you you can do it, but it, it's it's pretty. You know, it takes a lot of fancy picking to play like both the chords of Backstreets and that and right. the, the intro melody. And so it actually becomes relatively. It's a million times easier on the piano. And I think it's just the way that his compositional mind works was really better suited both to the piano and to having the instrument band play it. It isn't. That's why they're not a guitar riff band for the most part. It's just not the way he writes songs. You know, he writes the chords and he writes the melody, and they're together. They're very tightly entwined. I mean, the, the chord change, I'm getting technical now, but the, the chord changes and the intro to, to Backstreet's are, are very tightly entwined. They're one thing. Same for, like, even Prove It All Night or something. You can't sit there on guitar and reproduce that, but you can very easily on the piano. 
but anyway, I mean, there's, you know, the, there's, uh, there's a few things from the book. It's like, you know, the, the, the whole echo sound of it mm-hmm. is interestingly is, you know, it's from, cause a lot of echo going on, including on the, on the piano and on the bass and makes it all sound very, gives it that sound at the beginning. And a lot of this is Jimmy Ivey, who was the engineer at the time. And he had learned that from working with John Lennon. Right. who was a, you know, a huge proponent of sort of tape echo in part because he didn't like his voice. So he wanted, he always wanted that kind of rockabilly slap back on, on his voice. So it's, a, it, you know, it's kind of, that fascinates me that, that there's the direct sort of John Lennon sonic thing going on there. Um, and then, the, you know, Max told me that it's amazing how often there's a, a prior reference. But Max told me that the, the beat uh, was based on a Roy Orbison song called Running Scared. Building right. a lot of tension and release, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot, lot going on. And then Michael Pell saying that uh, he he coached, you know, who knows if Bruce would agree with this, but he coached him note through note for the guitar solo, so that it would be something not improvised, something very prepared and melodic. Right, and and yeah, and I think that the whole composition does feel, at, at, as far as Born to Run goes, very tight, and 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 clearly they spent a ridiculous amount of time on all these songs, but the the this one in particular feels very sort of polished. And I, I think it's interesting how, uh, and I think you mentioned this in the book, that uh, that Roy plays the organ too on this song. Like, like da- That's right. Da- yeah, Danny is, isn't playing the organ on this one. So No, Danny doesn't actually really play on Born to Run at all, except yeah. for maybe the title track. Uh, right. And it's it's always a little, you know, I, Roy talked a little bit about that to me, because that's one of the weird Bruce mysteries. And it's, it's part of it's just that, there may have been some personal issues, uh, as we know that Danny struggled with throughout his life, but there also was just that Danny was having trouble dealing with the very composed nature of these songs, where Roy would kind of map it all out, whereas Danny was a, a very intuitive right. sort of feel musician, and he just there just wasn't a place for him in these arrangements, these particular arrangements, whereas there were on Darkness and stuff. So, and so yeah, Roy ended up playing the organ, and as he told me, uh, extremely. Al Cooper on Blonde on Blonde, like playing deliberately exactly like Al Cooper would play on, on, on Blonde on Blonde. It's, to me, it's incredible how many... Uh, one of the things I, I realized in this book, the, the way these guys would sort of wield at will the entire history of rock up until that point. You know, if yeah. if someone said, oh, play it like Running Scared by Roy Orbison or play it like the, the organ on Blonde on Blonde, these guys know how to do that, you know, intuitively. And I, I found that pretty incredible. Yeah, and that that's uh, I think it's part and parcel of how long and how often they played in the Jersey Shore bar scene before anybody uh, knew who they were. Uh, that they sort of played covers of a lot of these songs for for years before they had to go out and really write their own stuff and then decide exactly what their what their sound was going to be. For sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, and and Roy, well, and Roy and Max sort of had their own education that wasn't quite on the bar scene. You know, it was, it was mm-hmm. uh, various cover. It, it was. Max played in everything from wedding bands to, you know, trying to get in the Broadway pit. And, and Roy did, you know, about, you know, so Roy basically memorized the entire, you know, <laughs> yeah. every song from 1950 to, so it was just a, a real combination of stuff for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's all awesome. Let's keep it moving. Let's go on to song number nine. We'll have def- definitely more stuff on this episode uh, about Born to Run songs, of course. Um, but we're going to hit something that uh, came many years later and, so I don't want to say it relaunched Springsteen's career, but it definitely might have put it back on the rails in terms of cultural relevance, at least. This is number nine. I was bruised and battered, I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. 
saw my reflection in a window and didn't know my own face. Oh, brother, gonna leave me wasting away on the streets of Philadelphia. So that was uh, Streets of Philadelphia, number nine, off of the Philadelphia movie soundtrack, and then later off of uh, the Greatest Hits album in 1995. Uh, the song originally came out in 93, I believe. Uh, and four. So, four, yeah, <laughs> 93, 94. He, he played at the, the Oscars in 94, right? I think that's right. Um, and uh, so the, this one starts with a call from uh, Jonathan Demi, the director of uh, the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington calling John Landau and then talking to Bruce. And when Bruce wrote the song, uh, he hadn't even seen the movie yet. He just heard, he just got from the director sort of the, the vibe and the characters. And then he went and, uh, and created this song that introduced his, uh, listeners to Bruce singing over a, a hip hop beat. Also, you know, won him an Oscar, won him four Grammys. And it was his last, uh, Billboard Hot 100 top 10 hit. So, Brian, a ton to unpack with this song. Uh, it's sort of, de- beyond standing the test of time, sort of stands alone uh, in its poignancy. And it's interesting the fact how Springsteen, some of the best stuff he's ever done, has come when people have asked him to write a song about something or come in, come in response to people sort of saying, hey, can you pull this one out of your ass? Sometimes he needed just someone to be like, hey, I need this song for whatever reason, whether it was, you know, uh, Clive Davis saying we needed another single for uh, Greetings from Raspberry Park. And he, and that's why he wrote Blinded by the Light and, and Spirit in the Night. So it's like as much as he's a completely self-directed artist, yes, yeah, sometimes he needs someone to come and be like, hey, I need this song. And it, it leads him in a direction. In this case... Uh, Streets of Philadelphia is a spectacularly important song because it pulled him out of the personal songwriting he had been doing. Right. And all of a sudden he was writing about issues in the outside world again. And it's a direct line really to, to go to Tom Joad and then the reunion of the East Street Band, if you ask me. You know, so it's a fascinating I, I, a fascinating moment in Bruce's career. And then there's also another example of a demo essentially being released as the real song. Right. There, there was a lot of attempts to gussy up what he recorded on his own mm-hmm. and in the end it's basically the demo yeah and uh yeah and it's the demo that he uh well i know he wrote he wrote the song at his uh, home studio in rumson uh when he was still living in rumson which for people in new jersey know where that is if people uh not from new jersey rumson is about a half hour ish from where he grew up in freehold uh about 20 minutes north of uh, asbury park uh, so yeah, Streets of Philadelphia, if people who were uh, listening to radio in the 90s, you definitely heard this all the time, uh, and if you were watching uh, the Grammys or the Oscars in uh, 94, then you know that uh, this, was, this was a big one. All right, but for number eight, we're going to take it all the way back to the first album, and uh, easily my favorite song, and what I think is by far the best song off of Greetings. So here's number eight. And I said, hey, gonna man. That's quicksand, that's quicksand, that ain't mud Have you thrown your sounds to the war? Did you lose them in the flood? All right, so that was uh, Lost in the Flood, at number eight, from Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, 1973. And uh, so, Brian, first question from this song, because I know that there's uh, people have different views on this. 
Do you think that the ragamuffin gunner in the first verse and Jimmy the Saint in the second verse are the same person? Because I personally think that it is, but I could be swayed either way, and I'm curious what you think. I genuinely have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping to, I looked at early drafts, which were extremely illuminating on some issues Mm -hmm. uh, for that song. Right. But but that that question I think will never be answered, and I think that's the kind of thing where you have, if you ask Bruce, he'll be like, you know, it's hard to say. Or, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> even he, like you don't really get an answer on that kind of thing. He probably, frankly, at this point, he doesn't remember. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's hard to follow. You know, it's hard to follow the. It would make sense if they're the same person, and then, and then uh, maybe I, it's it's a hard it's a good question. I think I don't think right. Bruce would care, but it, it's a good question and impossible to answer. Yeah. Fair enough. And uh, so beyond uh, our little super nerdy conversation about the characters in the song, uh, this song is uh, sort of the first uh, post-war disillusionment song. This is sort of the grandfather of the topic of uh, Born in the USA, of course. And uh, for people who go back and listen to the song, the the sort of explosion sound at the beginning of the song, it comes right in in the first bar of the song um that came from it brian correct me if i'm wrong from uh steve van zandt dropping an amp on the ground or punching an amp like punching an amp he specifically told me that he steve told me that he punched an amp okay and that was that was uh both steve's only contribution to the album yeah although he did also record a slide guitar part for for you that's never been heard that was cut from the album okay and it's also the only electric the only sort of amplified guitar heard on the whole album besides the blinded by the light. Uh, Otherwise there's no electric guitar on the album, including a lost in the flood, which is insane when you realize how they performed it later with all that loud electric guitar. And there's zero electric guitar on the recorded version of lost in the flood other than that amp amp sound, which I, I think is just nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and most people who think of, uh, Miami, Steve, little Steven is a quintessential part of the street band. You have to remember that he really wasn't, a main part of the band until he came, he came in in the born to run process. Uh, yeah, he wasn't a member. He wasn't a member. Basically, Mike Appel basically told Bruce like, "We can't afford him. You don't need another guitar player." Basically, I think that's one thing that actually Steve gave me more qual- uh, clarity on when I, I talked to him for the. It was actually for the podcast because he didn't officially talk for the book. I had other interviews with him, but that's he. He did come around during the greeting sessions and was basically deemed not by Bruce but by Mike Appel, but like that basically we, we we can't use this guy right yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, which is hilarious. So yeah, Lost in the Flood is a really, really great song. The narrative is great. Uh, every like, as opposed to some of the other early Bruce songs that are sort of hard to follow. E- even even this one with the characters maybe not being the same person, maybe being the same person. Uh, I think listening to this, I think everyone's kind of on board, and it's just insane to think that Springsteen had the wherewithal to write this when he was what twenty two ish, twenty two, twenty three. On to number seven, which uh, some of you might be familiar with. We'll see. You can't start a fire. You can't start a fire without a spark. This gun's for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Right, so that's Dancing in the Dark at number seven uh, from Born in the USA, 1984. Uh, if you don't know that song and you've made it this far, I don't know what to tell you. Most people know, know the story about Dancing in the Dark. Uh, this one came out of 
John Landau saying that for all the songs, the dozens of songs that Springsteen had written for the, the Born in the USA album, uh, it, he felt like it didn't have a defining leadoff single that would get everyone excited about the album. So Springsteen got mad and went home. And then in a day or so had uh, Dancing in the Dark. Um, it has the famous music video, which launched Courtney Cox's career uh, as the fan who comes up on stage with him. And uh, it's still his highest charting song of all time at number two. He's never had a number one single, thanks in part to uh, the summer of 84, which had a ton of big songs, including uh, Prince's When Doves Cry, which was at number one for well over a month and probably kept Dancing in the Dark out of the number one spot. Um, so, Brian, uh, what do you have to say about Dancing in the Dark? And do you think that at number seven, that it's too high because when I, when this list first came out in 2015, my big full list of all two at the time was like 293 songs. The most crap I got was people, the, the Bruce elitist saying, Oh, dancing in the dark shouldn't be so high. So do you think it's too high, Brian? I'm putting you on the spot. You know, I have a weird lack of ability in my brain to rank songs. It's just not where my brain goes, but I don't, you know, I think you can absolutely make it. I wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be my number seven, but I, I, I think you can make a case for it. I think it is a great song. And I think that, you know, it, it, it it's, it's a very interesting sort of breakthrough for Bruce for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my favorite thing is, again, talking about referencing songs is what Max told me is that John Lando kind of came into the booth and when they were struggling to get a version of it and said, play it like beat it. Right, which right. is super fascinating. It, a very funny thing is like, you know, you may encounter this with interviewees is Max had never said that before, uh, right. as best as I could tell until I, I, you know, we dug into it. But then once he remembered it with talking to me, he's now said, he now said it in another interview, like <laughs> for a very small, and I, this, that's, that's sort of the no good deed gets up. When, when you dredge these things up from people's memories, then they're in the front of their brain. They start saying them a lot. What are you going to do? Right. Um, but, but I think that's the other, the whole, I mean, you know, if you really want to get geeky, the funny thing is like, so beat it was played by, uh, Jeff Procaro, who would then be, actually be the drummer on the human touch album. Right. So a, a weird sort of thing there, Full but, circle. but you know, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's a great song. And the, the other actually funny thing is even Max doubts this theory, but I like it is, is that Bruce had, no one knows this, but Bruce had just spent a lot of time helping edit Max's book. Big Beat, which is a, a book of interviews with drummers, and Bruce apparently had some very specific and incisive edits on that book. Like he helped him cut it in half. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he he told he, you know, he he actually, you know, believe it or not, like pumped up Bruce in '84 was sitting there with a with a pen <laughs> and editing and and a bandana, presumably, and and editing this, you know, his drummer's book. Uh, right. He spent a week like with a pen, which I, I love, and it just shows how sort of you know, how some of the popular people don't really know Bruce, basically. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. that's, he's a guy who would edit your book, you know, <laughs> with a, like, like, so, so, and, and would be interested in doing such a thing, you know? So anyway, but I can't help connecting that with, obviously when he says, I'm sick of sitting around here writing, trying to write this book, obviously, you know, it, it's a metaphor for working on the album and, and everything, but I can't help connecting that with the fact that he would he'd just been sitting around with a pen working on Max's book. Right. Uh, even Max is like, ah, oh, it's probably a coincidence. But I, I just love that. I, I, I just, I, the link uh, is tantalizing for me. Right. And yeah, well, Brian, take that to the grave, no matter what any, anybody says. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, and which is hilarious, because I would imagine if, if I'm Max and Bruce is cutting my book in half and I'm like, Bruce, can we look at all your, your lyrics uh, from the, the first like two albums that are just like huge paragraphs of words? Um, but uh, but yeah, so Dancing in the Dark, I I love it. I, I think that this is one of the, the quintessential 80s pop songs. Uh, 
I think that it's so interesting. And it's so like people don't realize how sort of coincidental certain things end up being the way that these momentous occasions happen. Like the fact that the the famous synth sound just that came from a new uh, synthesizer that Roy Bitten had gotten and it had this specific sound on it that if he didn't have that synthesizer, it wouldn't Absolutely. have been that. Like, like it's so like things happen so like sort of serendipitously that people don't realize that they think everything is mapped out. But it, a lot of this stuff, especially with Bruce, is just like what they happened to have on hand at the time, who was around at the time. That's um, right. So Dan- Dancing in the Dark, huge song, which uh, and that came together very quickly um, and came together, last po- point on this, very late in the process of recording. They were, already, they were, they, mixing, they were mixing the album. Yeah, exactly. They stopped mixing sessions to record a new song, yes. Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah, Dancing in the Dark, which ended up being the first single off the album, was like one of the last songs that they uh, that they actually laid down, and he la- and he recorded a ton of music for this album that you got later on tracks and things like that. All right, so moving on to number six, which uh, is one maybe my favorite. Uh, that, that's far, well, it depends how you define a ballad, but one of, one of my favorite uh, Bruce ballads for sure of all time. This is number six. Tonight, tonight, the strip's just right I wanna blow them off in my first heat Summer's here and the time is right For racing in the street All right, that's uh, Racing in the Street from Darkness on the Edge of Town, 1978. That's number six on our list. And uh, so let's get this out of the way right now for the Bruce nerds that have been talking about this forever. Um, whether you can actually put a, uh, a 396 big block engine in a 1969 Chevy with the Fuley heads and the Hearst performance shifter, most people say that, and I think, Brian, you're in this camp, that you cannot physically do that. I've, I've gone down the crazy comment rabbit hole that people say you can, you can do it if you, uh, if you know how to modify a car correctly uh but uh it definitely was not being sold that way to my knowledge i know nothing about cars i I sound like maybe i know something i do not know anything this is all just based off of what i've read uh but anyway uh epic piano ballad uh sort of the sequel to uh don't worry baby that's what that's what uh springsteen has said like that that's that character years later um and it's uh an homage to uh the stone pony scene of the time in Asbury Park and and people having their hot rod cars a, around the venue and, and racing down the street and things like that. Uh, and just a terrific song, this, the simple piano version, uh, the piano part is just haunting and uh, just easily my favorite thing off of uh, off of Darkness. Brian, is this your is this easily your favorite thing off of Darkness? Probably not, right? I don't know if it's my number. I mean, there's so many great things in darkness. That's a tough one, but it's it's a it's a very very great song. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, there's a story about like Joe Strummer from the Clash just listening to the song over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it's uh, you know he he spent a lot of time researching cars as I write in the book for this for this album and this song. Like he he had a whole he had all these car magazines and he, yeah, I mean the general consensus is that he screwed it up. Uh, right. And he had a, he had that great quote, which is. I write about him and I ride him. He meant cars. I don't have to fix them. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it, he's not the, he, you know, I, I think he was, he was bummed when he first heard it and then got over it. It's not like he changed it. 
Uh, the funny thing is, in the alternate version, because they recorded a million different versions of this song trying to get it right, right. in the alternate version that they that they released, that car that he describes with a slightly different configuration can't exist either. So right. he just had a lot of trouble <laughs> getting his cars right, but, you know, who cares? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, if you're one of those people who... Uh likes to say, oh, Bruce is a phony. He uh, he never worked all these factory jobs he sings about. And then it, th- this this fits right in with you with your narrative there that he uh, is writing about, is trying to write about this specific car and being this uh, sort of drag racer and not yeah, no, I mean, not really knowing what he's talking about and also not having a license for so long. Uh, yeah, well, you know, Robert, Robert De Niro never really drove a taxi and yeah. Martin Scorsese you know, so <laughs> was never in the mafia. So, uh, you know, I think that that's about how seriously... How seriously I take that particular yeah, critique. But. That's fair. That's fair. And uh, w- one other little fun fact on this, uh, the famous uh, D- uh, radio DJ Richard Neer, uh, when uh, th- this was his favorite Springsteen song and when uh, WNEW uh, gave up its rock format in 1999, Racing the Street was the last song Neer played uh, when he was DJing on that station. Um, so oh, That's sad. That's yeah, sad. Yeah. And talk, yeah, talk about going out on a, on a sad kind of note. Oof. Yeah, and uh, all right, so let's keep going. We are halfway through. You guys, can we believe we only have five songs left? We're down to the top five. Can you guess what the top five are? I have no idea. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Maybe maybe this is the first episode you're listening to and you really have no idea what they are. Um, but uh, we're going to play number five right now, uh, which is another uh, Stone Cold Bruce classic from an era that is, other than the Born to Run era, probably my favorite era for a lot of reasons. All right. Uh, as you all know, that's the river uh, off the river, 1980. That's number five on our list. And the river as an album and this song specifically, it was so many things to so many people, part and parcel of it being a double album coming in at 83 minutes, uh, which doesn't hurt. Uh, th- this was the river, the album and, and this song too was sort of a fork in the road. Uh, stylistically, the songwriting style of Bruce uh, really gravitating towards uh, inhabiting people, uh, other people's sort of psyches and singing in the first person and, uh, going away from, uh, the way that he sort of narrated songs before, um, that the, the river sort of begets Nebraska, Tom Joe, Devils and Dust, and a ton of other songs that appear on other albums too, uh, on Tunnel of Love and, um, and even all the way through Western Stars, the new album. Um, so this song, interestingly, was originally while they were writing, it was called Angeline. Uh, that's one of the names they had for it. And uh, this song is sort of a big throwback to Springsteen's love of Hank Williams, uh, which, Brian, I know, you, I know you talk about in the book. I think basically Bruce had absorbed a whole new canon of influences, including country music, including Hank Williams. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it just comes out, you know. And, and then specifically, there's this whole thing about uh, what Hank Williams song actually inspired it directly. Cause it's, it's, it's both it's because it, there's a direct inspiration. And then there's just this general lyric writing approach that clearly came from country music in general. But, you know, he, he even in his book, he says that he was listening to uh, my bucket got a hole in it. Mm-hmm. That he, he's always said, but yeah, I mean, you know, Chuck Bakken told me that he would sit around the studio before the river came out and he would play him. He had memorized all these Hank Williams songs. And when you do that and you're 
a gifted artist, like some version of that comes out. And I think that's, that's what, that's what happened. Um, and of course the, the, this song is, uh, thematically based off of his older sister, Virginia, Ginny, who, uh, who married, uh, very young and, and, and moved away from New Jersey and is with her husband, uh, to this day. And so the, when you're listening to the river, if you didn't know that already, the, I got Mary pregnant and everything, that's all about, uh, Springsteen's sister. So on to number four, which, uh, this one might be a little bit of a, of a curveball for more of the casual fan, but this is, uh, just such an epic, epic, epic song. And, uh, it's, I believe, the longest song uh, on any Springsteen album, uh, at coming in just under 10 minutes. Uh, but this is number four. Here we go. And hook up to the train. Oh, hook up to the night train. Uh, hook it up. Hook up to the, hook up to the train. But I know I still won't touch the train. No, she won't take the train. That's New York City Serenade at number four from the Wild Innocence East Street Shuffle, 1973. Again, number four on our list. And this song, there are only two Springsteen songs, I'd say, that give me the chills every single time I listen to them. It's our number one song, which we haven't talked about yet. And uh, this one, because as a sort of piano geek, this is the ultimate piano song and the ultimate contribution from uh, Dave Sanchez. Um, And... Just everything from the the strings that you hear at the very beginning of the song, that's him like raking across the strings of the piano, like the actual strings inside the piano itself does not usually happen in rock music. That whole intro, a lot of it is an improvisation, which is hard to believe. And the fact that uh, Sanchez laid all this down when he was like 19 or 20 is equally insane. Uh, And... Yeah, the, this is one of those songs that goes on forever, but it's so ridiculously good. And it opened the three MetLife shows in 2016 on the River Tour here in New Jersey. And they had a full string section to come out and do it in the intro. And it was just this momentous introduction. I could talk about this song all day because there's so much to unpack with this song. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. Well, you're right. It's an amazing song and, and quite a showpiece for David Sanchez and quite a statement in Bruce's faith in David Sanchez at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a testament to what a collaborative album The Wild Innocent and the Eastern Shuffle was between Bruce and Sanchez in some ways, you know, and the rest of the band. But it was, it, you know, Sanchez was really given a lot of mileage um, on that album. And, you know, Sanchez himself, like, yeah, I was, I was, I was pushing him to remember what the influences were on that piece of music at the beginning and how it came about. And, you know, it's basically like Bruce was, was just like play, you know? Right. Um, on tour, they, uh, like I said, they would bring out a whole string uh, section to play that, to play with this song. But when they recorded it, it was, uh, I, I think it was Sanchez again. He, uh, they, had, they had rented a, a Mellotron, which is like a super old school, like tape sampler thing, which is, Really weird to play. Go look it up on YouTube, Mellotron, and and that was uh, what produced the uh, the string sounds that you hear on the on the recording. Uh, there yeah, were, they're even more prominent, I would say, on the incident on Fifty Seventh Street. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the and the also worth noting that this song 
is sort of two songs put together. Uh, there were two earlier versions uh, uh, called Vibes Man and New York City Song that got sort of pushed together and then remolded. Um, but yeah, New York City Serenade, again, if I could play that intro on piano, I would be a very happy person. Um, and <laughs> and uh, Brian, one, one more question on, on this one. If Dave Sanchez were to have stayed in, in E Street Band all this ye- all these years, and uh, Roy Bitten didn't come in. How do you think that the se- the Springsteen sound would be would be different? Is that an impossible question? But it's something I often think about. I think that the answer is it just wouldn't have happened. Honestly, okay. I think that Bruce's moving away towards a simpler, more direct, more forceful kind of thing was going to happen one way or another, and I think that Sanchez would have lost patience with that. I think. So I think maybe maybe the change would have happened. I think you know you might have gotten a Born to Run album that was very different, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe frankly not as good as Greatest Sanchez is, but because it might have, if you listen to those jazzy versions of the songs that were played before Sanchez and Boom Carter left the band, they're not as good. Right. So because they were they weren't a good fit for the material. So I think you might have gotten a Born to Run album that wasn't as good, and then Sanchez would have left the band anyway. Okay. Well, then I'm glad it did. Then I'm glad it didn't happen. Then. And I think, and, it, and you know, Sanchez went on to a very, very uh, excellent career on his own. And those tone albums that he recorded are pretty interesting if you're into jazz fusion. So uh, you know, it's and and you listen to them and you're like, okay, this guy was going to be too constrained in the E Street Band. Like this was, you know, he he was he was just playing in a different genre for the most part. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's why New York City Serenade sort of is this sort of rock, but with like R and B and jazz and blues infused uh, song that sounds like no other song Springsteen's really ever done uh, to an extent. So moving on to number three, guys, you only have three left. Uh, if you've been along the ride for the ride this far, thank you. Uh, the last three, I bet you can guess what they are, but you probably don't know what the order is. So we're gonna hit number three right now, and uh, you might be surprised to be which one is that to see which one is that number three. So do I even have to say what that song was? So it, it's bo- Born to Run, of course, off Born to Run, 1975. It's number three on our list. And I know that Born to Run is number one on the Rolling Stone list. And again, guys, remi- reminder that I'm speaking to Brian Hyatt, senior writer for Rolling Stone. So Brian, is this where we uh, where we fight to the death? Because you, you, uh, you and your cohort obviously think this is the best Springsteen song ever. I think it is probably the best pure rock song he's ever done. And obviously this is what launched his pretty much his entire career as most people know it. Um, and so for, first off, before we get into it, uh, do you want to take me to task? I can take it. I can take the heat. No, no, I, I, I don't. I, I, I again, like I, I'm not a big like list order guy. I, I don't really care. Uh-huh. Good. <laughs> I have to admit at some point, I, at some point I must've submitted a ballot for that thing for our list, but I'm not sure. I don't even remember how I ranked it. Uh, Cause for me, it, it changes every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Born to Run is just like if you – sometimes you can tell yourself, you know, with, I'm going to write one of the greatest or the greatest rock song ever made right now. I'm going to make this the greatest rock song ever made. And you just psych yourself out and you get crap. That's right. what happens most of the time. Sure. Once in a while, 
Mm-hmm. You'd be like, I'm going to make the greatest rock song ever made. And you end up making one of the greatest rock songs ever made. So it's an interesting. It helps to be young and super talented and super ambitious at the moment that you tell yourself that. But I, I think it's fascinating that he like set out so deliberately to do it and did it. And it also was like he was given it again. It's, you know, we're talking about songs on order. He was given a challenge. Basically, he needed to make a single so good mm-hmm. that it would reignite Columbia Records interest in him. Right. He needed to focus all his energy on. And he took that super literally. So they just like beat their heads into the ground on this one song, probably more than they needed to. But nonetheless, like, you know, sometimes you aim for the moon and stars and you hit the moon and stars. Listeners, can you imagine Springsteen is like, he's like 25 sitting on the edge of his bed. He's living in this little bungalow at seven and a half West End Court in Long Branch, New Jersey, which I've been there. It's this tiny little house. It's like a block and a half from the beach and just sort of plinking this out on piano and then, getting in the studio and spending like six months on this one song alone. This song was written way before the rest of Born to Run was. There was a, a pretty significant gap. This was the song, like Brian said, to, to reignite uh, Columbia's interest. Uh, we, you know, we, uh, we got one last chance to make it real from Thunder Road, different song. But uh, like that was the, that was the sent- sentiment for this song. And uh, there, I think there is something like, more uh, about a dozen, Brian, right? Uh, like a guitar overdubs on this. It's just like this gigantic wall of sound. And uh, Brian, I'd love to hear. I think that's a, I think that's a dozen just acoustic guitars. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's exactly. Way more, there's way more electric guitars, and you can barely hear the acoustic guitar on that song. Yeah, exactly. People are like acoustic guitars. What? Um, but can Brian? Can you just talk a little bit about the or the early '60s AM radio uh, influence on this song? Because it's so timeless to people now, but in 1975, th- this song was sort of had, had like almost like a retro kind of sound in the way that it took from from uh, songs like a decade earlier. Well, Steve Vincent makes a great point, which is that this song was a little bit of preview of punk rock in in a, in a little bit of a way. I mean, you know, first of all, as I mentioned later in the book, it's fascinating to realize that the Ramones were wearing exactly what Bruce wore on the cover of Born to Run. Right. Uh, it's, it's that same outfit. Yeah. So that's sort of like 50s greaser AM radio thing. Bruce was on that vibe and it was it was in the era, as Steve says, when people, everyone was looking forward and Bruce was looking back mm-hmm. uh, in order to in order to find his future. Bruce told me that there's a Dwayne Eddy song called Because We're Young and that's where he got the riff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can hear if you listen to locomotion, you can hear both the intro and that sort of that that yeah. the, the sax at the bottom of the chords. If you listen to the "Be My Baby" by the Runettes, you hear the whoa whoa ohs. So that you know, all of that is there. Right. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and uh, so and the so there we could the, we could do a whole episode on this song, but just a, a couple more things on "Born to Run" before we move on. Um, this was the last song to feature. Uh, Ernest Boom Carter on drums and Dave Sanchez on keyboards before they left to go uh, form Tone, the jazz, jazz fusion band that Brian mentioned before. Um, and then Max Weinberg and Roy Bitten did the rest of the album. Uh, and this was the song that got uh, Springsteen onto the cover of Time and New- Newsweek magazines. That uh, the, And this is really the song that makes him become the boss as people know him. Get And the nickname, I don't know if it came especially from the recording of this song, but th- this was why he, he was nicknamed this because he was such a perfectionist and because he was going to tell people exactly how it needed to sound. Uh, the Clarence did the saxophone solo for this a billion times. Uh, the version that you hear on the record is 
pieced together from a million different recordings. To a lot of people, this is the song. This is the pinnacle of the live shows that if it doesn't close the show, it comes at the very, the very end of the show. Okay, well, we are going to move on to number two. Uh, only two left, the penultimate Springsteen song. Uh, this is number one for a lot of people. It's number two for me, and you, uh, you definitely know what it is. Town full of losers. I'm pulling out of here to win very soon. But first, this is, of course, Thunder Road at number two. Off Born to Run, 1975, of course. Uh, and, you know, the, again, this is another one, one of those songs that for a lot of people, this is the song. Uh, Brian, I'm pretty sure, uh, having perused your book, that uh, I think you wrote more about this song than any other song uh, in the book. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but it sure seems that way. It's almost like three full pages of under road stories. Um, I think, I think it's the, you know what it is? I think a lot of the opening tracks of the albums had the longest entries. Sure. So I think a few of them, I think born USA has it because what happened is as much as you want to go song by song, that's the idea of my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there's an overarching story to the album right. that, that was best told through the first entry of the song. So, and I think that's a great example for Thunder Road because as I was saying earlier, Thunder Road is a great example of how, he transitioned from the looser version of the East Street Band mm-hmm. into what you hear on Born to Run because you can hear the earlier version of Thunder Road, which people think is called Wings for Wheels, but Max told, said that it was not actually called that. But um, you, you can hear the early version, and it's much, it, it sounds the same at the beginning, and then it goes into all these jazzy breakdowns and all this crap, and it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And he, he had to learn how to write a much tighter thing. You right. know, uh, and and so you can actually hear him going from second album Bruce to third album Bruce, and and then of course there's all the themes, uh, the all the all the reasons why people love the song and everything else. But I think to me that that's where it stands in the catalog. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, it stands very very high, very high atop the catalog. And the, this for a lot of people was again the this being the opening track off Born to Run. This was the introduction of Roy Bitten and Max Weinberg. Um, and the title Thunder Road, uh, was apparently taken from Springsteen had seen a movie poster of Robert Mitchum's 1958 movie Thunder Road. And like that title, he hadn't actually seen the movie until years later, apparently. And this is sort of when John Landau comes in, uh, into the story, really honing in on what the E Street Band sound would become and what, and how most, most people know it. The reason I have this at number two over Born to, over Born to Run at number three, which I'm sure some people are probably wondering, uh, it's that big full band sort of coda at the end. Uh, that's one of my favorite East Street Band melodies of all time. Uh, it's just this monumental arrangement. Brian, is there anything else to say? <laughs> no, especially because I, I got to go soon. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up with uh, before Brian has to get out of here. Um, so we are going to 
land on number one. You guys, we've gone through all these Bruce songs. We're finally down to number one. I can't believe it. Brian is on the edge of his seat. I can't actually see Brian. He's on Skype. But Brian is probably on the edge of his seat. Are you guys ready? Here's number one. Finally, we finally made it. Here's number one. Here it comes. you guys at number one the number one song in my humble opinion of bruce springsteen all time is jungle land the final song off of the born to run album 1975 number one on our list sitting atop the list and i mean let's just start with my favorite part of the song is the epic clarence clemens solo if that's not your favorite clarence clemens bruce springsteen moment i don't know what i'm gonna hang up right now so just so hit me it's pretty good. I have, <laughs> I have a lot of, a lot of uh, favorite Clarence Clemens moments, but uh, I like the Badlands solo. Okay. Uh, but it, 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 the Jungleland solo is incredible, obviously. Yeah, it's it's absolutely monstrous. Uh, this was cut right at the end of the recording sessions. They were about to go on tour, and the album was even finished. Uh, it, it's, it was this super frantic rush to the end, and uh, it's this mesmerizing song. It's got all these parts that are linked together beautifully by all these different little transitions, the way that it goes at the end into that sort of celestial piano part from Roy Bitten uh, to sort of close the song out, uh, the dynamics in Springsteen's vocal from basically whispers and telling the story about the magic rat and the barefoot girl, um, his most epic sort of West Side Story gang romance song. And then to these big shouts, um, the song, I mean, it clocks in nine and a half minutes when they play it live. It's a journey, uh, but it's my personal favorite. Uh, and I just think that as a band, as Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, they were never better than this moment. Uh, it was sort of like the who on steroids. Uh, and yeah, it's just a, uh, God, it's good, man. It's so good. Uh, and it, it gives me it gives me chills just thinking about it. Um, but Brian, final closing thoughts on this song. It's really it's funny. I, I when I was talking to uh, the East Street band members, both current and and former, mm-hmm. they actually uh, David Sanchez and Roy Bitten actually ended up pretty violently disagreeing over whether there was a prog element to that song. Um, okay. David Sanchez said that he and Boom Carter especially loved Jungle Land because they heard it as sort of an American version of progressive rock. Mm-hmm. And Roy, Roy was actually offended. I guess for him, Prague is like a curse word. Right. Um, but it is, you know, it, <laughs> it, 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 when we later learned that Bruce had listened to King Crimson, and obviously The Who, which he specifically credited, and, and it is, it's very much sort of like an old school FM radio song, like the kind of song that the DJ would put on so they could, you know, run for a bathroom break. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of thing, and it's it, I, that's how that's that is how I see it. I see it as kind of his his take on the like sort of prog R and B. And I, I will say my and my favorite part I think besides the solo is the howls at the end. Oh uh, yeah, which 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 John Landon told me was just like 
you know, Bruce just came up with, they had all sorts of ideas for the ending. It could be guitar or whatever. And he just started doing that. And they were just like, oh my God, well, this has to close the album, which I love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I'm so, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I can barely even talk. Again, guys, pick up Brian Hyatt's book, uh, Brian Hyatt from Rolling Stone, his new book, Bruce Springsteen, the, the stories behind the songs. Brian, I cannot let you go without giving me a quick trivia question as we've done <laughs> on every episode. Uh, so this one is from the Tunnel of Love era. Um, what was the date of Springsteen's, and it's a multiple choice question, so just hold on a second. Yeah. What, was, what was the date of Springsteen's momentous East Berlin, Germany performance on the Tunnel of Love Express tour? Was it July 4th, 1988, July 19th, 1988, July 19th, 1989, or August 19th, 1989? <laughs> My answer is I have no idea and don't care. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, for the, for the super fans out there who, re, who remember this, uh, it was July 19th, 1988, where Springsteen had played to a, a billion people in Germany. I, I'm a different kind of Springsteen geek. I'm not good with dates and uh, yeah. that kind of trivia. Okay. Well, to all those listening, Brian is sort of one of you, but also not one of you. All right, Brian, <laughs> I'm going to let you go. Uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, for coming on Springsteen Time 70. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Congrats on making it all the way through. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. Guys, listeners, it's just you and me now. Thank you so much for listening to this. It's been a, a journey uh, researching all these songs. I've had a great time. I hope you guys have had a great time too. Thank you so much to all of my guests that have come on the show. And thank you. Quick shout out to my studio engineer, Mike Russo, who's been sitting in this room quietly for all of these. Jim Norton has mixed these. He's been he's been great too. It, please uh, check out my stuff on nj.com slash entertainment or nj.com slash music or on NJ.com's any of their social pages. You can follow me on Twitter, at Bobby Olivier. And, uh, and thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll do another one of these one day. Maybe, maybe when Springsteen turns 80, we'll, we'll come back and do uh, a few more songs. But thank you guys. Keep on rocking. And uh, I hope to hear from you on social media. Uh, send me a note. Let me know what you think about the podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye.